Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and today you will be able to listen about a hidden innovation gem in the United States, that is St. Louis. Before that, a few of the latest news about how tech is trying to aid the coronavirus pandemic. When Europe became the new epicenter of the spread and with numbers of infected rising in the US, tech companies offered their knowledge to curb the curve of the pandemic. No matter the good intentions, some caution needs to be taken into account when looking at the digital health apps and solutions. On March 14th, Apple restricted publishing of COVID-19 related apps to recognized entities such as government organizations, health-focused NGOs, companies with deep credentials in health issues, or medical and educational institutions. The British-based Organization for the Review of Care and Health Applications, ORCA, which has in place a high-standard review process, warned on March 13 that app stores are unregulated and that 85% of apps do not meet their quality threshold. Therefore, they published a list of apps they do find safe to use. Categories include applications supporting self-care and management of anxiety, apps for managing respiratory and heart condition symptoms, apps to manage diabetes, and apps helping to reduce pressure on the UK NHS. I added the link to the list in the show notes, and you can also go to orca.co.uk to find out more. In the US, the demand for telemedical solutions surged, Medicare expanded telemedicine coverage nationwide to help seniors with health problems stay home to avoid the coronavirus. To mention a few more U.S. examples, Carolina's healthcare system Atrium Health saw a 500% of increase in virtual visits last week. Orbita, which provides award-winning voice and chat solutions for healthcare and life science sector, has introduced the new COVID-19 virtual assistance, which fills two purposes, education and access to information. The virtual assistant enables patients to have an up-to-date and easy-to-find information related to the outbreak and can be used as a triage tool for, to help patients understand their own health better. And if you check Node.Health, which stands for Network of Digital Evidence in Health, Node.Health is hosting a number of webinars to discuss support digital health solutions can bring in this crisis. Ashish Atreja, member of the executive board of Node.Health and a practicing gastroenterologist at Mount Sinai in New York, made an important remark that the best care takes place at home. And as an example... To better monitor immunosuppressed patients with IBD, Mount Sinai offered almost 6,000 of their IBD patients a COVID-19 digital triage tool and 40% of the patients opted in and are now in active surveillance program. 
It's important to mention that COVID is different from flu, and the recent study from the American Journal of Gastroenterology revealed that diarrhea is a prominent symptom of COVID-19. This data comes from China by investigators from the Wuhan Medical Treatment Expert Group for COVID-19, and they showed that the digestive symptoms are co common in patients uh, as a chief complaint when they come to the hospital. To read more, see the link in the show notes. Israeli-based Dreamed Diabetes, the developer of a personalized cloud-based AI diabetes management solution, which you can listen to more about in one of the previous episodes of this show. So Dreamed Diabetes set up a virtual clinics that require no physical interaction to support their patients. For the first time, patients will be given a safe, easy and reliable treatment in the comfort of their homes, supported by the evaluation of their endocrinologists. In Italy, according to the BBC, a 3D printer company designed and printed life-saving respiratory valves which connect patients in intensive care to breathing machines. And a Slovenian company, Mediately, which is present in eight European countries and offers doctors decision support tools and country-specific drug registries, executed a survey among their 100,000 users about the greatest fears and needs doctors treating COVID-19 face at the moment. Based on the results, they are adding relevant information and tools to aid the doctors on the ground. Another interesting fact is that in China, when the COVID crisis was at its high, AI leader in healthcare Yitu, in collaboration with the Shanghai Public Health Clinical Center, released its cutting-edge AI diagnosis system to help doctors carry out quantitative analysis and evaluation of therapeutic efficacy of the new coronavirus lesions based on CT images. It was the first AI-equipped diagnostic assistant which significantly improved efficiency in identifying coronavirus through automatic detection and quantitative analysis within two to three seconds. Hopefully, all these efforts, on top of governmental measures and urgent innovative approaches to healthcare reorganization, will flatten the curve. And now, to today's topics healthcare ecosystem in St. Louis, in Missouri, in the United States. I spoke with Luke Blackburn, business developer at Global STL, a section of BioSTL, which has laid the foundation for St. Louis innovation economy in 2001, with a comprehensive set of transformational programs that elevate St. Louis leadership and solving important world challenges in agriculture, medicine, healthcare and other technology areas. St. Louis is a regional healthcare powerhouse and is the home to the largest non-profit hospital system in the US, Ascension. Washington University is based there, the number one pharmacy benefits manager, U Express Scripts and other important US players in healthcare. You will hear about what's unique about St. Louis, how is Global STL engaging with 15 countries around the world, and more. Enjoy the show, and do check the links I mentioned before in the show notes or on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com.
Look, in 2013, you moved from the U.S. to Latin America for four years. Can you share a few thoughts about that experience? Did it have anything to do with healthcare? Did you have any contact with the healthcare systems at all? I, I kind of joke. Um, back then, in 2013, I was just turned 25 years old. Um, I was living in St. Louis, working in finance, actually. And I kind of joke and say I had a quarter-life crisis. Um, I started asking myself a lot of questions, you know, questions such as, am I truly happy with the, you know, trajectory of my life? Am I happy with my relationships? Am I happy with my personal growth? Am I happy with my city and my country? And, you know, what I came up with was a lot of those were no's. And I realized that I had always wanted to sort of experience something different and sort of see what else was out there. Um, I kept coming back to the idea that there has to be something more to what I'm experiencing today. So the reason I picked South America is because I spoke a little bit of Spanish. Um, I was sort of going through a libertarian phase of my life. And Chile at the time was very high on the Economic Freedom Index. A few years prior to that, in 2011, they had started the program called Startup Chile, where they paid innovators from around the world to essentially come to Chile for six months, and they would give them non-dilutive funding of $40,000. And all they had to do in return was come to Chile to live there and build their company and do a very small handful of community service projects to help other local entrepreneurs. But to answer your question, on, I did not come into any contact with the healthcare ecosystem other than one time I had to get a couple stitches just from a little accident. It was a very eye-opening experience, though. In what sense? Why? It, yeah, because um, it happened in the evening and because I was on a tourist visa and the, the, the people came and said, okay, You need to go to this hospital. And I went and I didn't speak. Uh, well, I spoke a little bit of Spanish, but I didn't speak that much. And I was trying to do it all myself and sort of they were very kind to me and they sort of helped me through that process. But uh, it was just it was almost as if I was in a completely foreign space because I actually didn't I, I would have been pretty, pretty blessed to not have much interaction with the U.S. healthcare system before that. So I wasn't used to being in hospitals. I wasn't used to this whole process. So it was a bit it was a bit of a different experience. Everything was all good, no problem there. But my work that I was doing in, in Chile was actually related to entrepreneurship development and um, alternative education. How did you then move to healthcare? The organization that I work for is called BioSTL, and BioSTL does quite a few things under their umbrella. But one of them is this thing called Global STL, and that's the initiative that I work on. And I was living in South America for four years. I had taken a look around. I was living in Brazil. And I said to myself, yeah, maybe I'll go back to the United States. Maybe I'll go back to St. Louis. And when I started researching what was happening in St. Louis over the last you know, four years that I had been gone, I was really blown away by what was happening And BioSTL was the company that sort of kept coming up in the sort of catalyst role of making all these innovations and cool developments happen in the entrepreneur slash innovation ecosystem in St. Louis. It was a very, very serendipitous role. 
And under the global STL work that we do, we actually work in healthcare, but we also work in a couple of different industries too. So agriculture and food, and also cybersecurity and financial services. And, you know, somebody told me recently, and I'm, I'm going to steal their term, I guess you could say that I have an industry agnostic toolkit. And sometimes I think it actually helps bringing in people from other industries and sectors to come into healthcare to help shake things up. Ascension, which is one of the largest nonprofit hospital systems in the United States, headquartered in St. Louis, their executive uh, VP and chief strategy officer is a guy named Eduardo Conrado, and he comes from uh, Motorola. Lots of new things are happening in healthcare, and we're starting to take from other industries, and I think that's going to only help us as we continue down this innovation journey, and we make innovation more of a part of the DNA of healthcare, and we accept it more openly. You said the research about the development in St. Louis blew your mind away. Can you be more specific? What caught your attention? I had no idea the amount of healthcare delivery purchasing power that sits in St. Louis. And only through my work with Global STL did I find that out. And now that I'm working with Global STL and BioSTL, we put our data that we've collected in front of people in St. Louis, people from Chicago, people from all over the country, and they are blown away by the fact that, you know, St. Louis actually has more healthcare delivery buying power than Philadelphia, than Cleveland, than Boston, than Chicago, than Nashville. All of these regions, most people domestically and internationally would say those are healthcare powerhouses. And yet St. Louis gets totally left behind because there is a massive awareness gap in terms of what do we have here and just what a rich ecosystem we actually have. You know, we can go into a lot of unique stories about St. Louis that most people don't know. Uh, just one, one small aside is you know, St. Louis used to be 120 years ago. It was essentially the Silicon Valley of the United States. You know, it was the gateway to the West. All of the risk takers, all of the innovators that wanted to explore a new life, they basically entered the West through St. Louis. Many of them stayed in St. Louis and they built massive, massive multi multinational companies. They were startups and they grew them and grew them. You know, St. Louis in the United States is historically known as a Fortune 500 city because at one point, not too long ago, maybe 30 years ago, I think St. Louis had like 12 or 13 Fortune 500 companies of the world headquartered here in St. Louis. And, you know, People, people know that, but they don't know the rich history of sort of how it happened that way. But long story short, over the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, our trajectory actually was going down. Our populations were going down. You know, crime was going up. You know, bad outcomes were happening on a social perspective. But, you know, in the 90s, people started to take a look and say, hey, This, is, this doesn't have to be this way. Let's rally together. Let's figure this thing out. And one of the groups that helps to do that on the innovation side of life sciences and biosciences is BioSTL. What would you say is the reason that St. Louis seems to be on the sidetrack? How do you see that revival happening in bringing 
more attention to this area? I would just say we're just bad storytellers. You know, plain, plain and simple, we just do not do a very good job of telling our own story. Cleveland, they have Cleveland Clinic. Philadelphia has some really wonderful, amazing organizations that are well known. Boston, you know, it speaks for itself. Every innovator across the world wants to go to Boston to get access to their health and medical ecosystem, right? Um, Chicago is the third largest city in the United States. Everybody knows they have a massive amount of buying power in, in specifically health systems. You know, Nashville is the same way. Nashville is actually much smaller than St. Louis, but because they have HCA uh, and another very, very large for-profit health system, most people know them from, from that. Now, the interesting thing about St. Louis when it comes particularly to Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia When an innovator comes here and gets to take a look at the ecosystem and also understands the differences of cost of living and sort of the access to the innovation groups inside these organizations, they're completely blown away because it is such a stark contrast because, like I said, cost of living is much more competitive um, and also the people here are really partnership-oriented And they're very much open to access or bringing in innovation and deploying it into their systems. Missouri's health system is the eighth worst among the 50 states and the District of Columbia, um, according to a New York-based policy foundation, which released a report in December last year. So do you think that has anything to do with the bad reputation of the whole uh, state and St. Louis as such? It certainly could play a role, at least in terms of the people that pay attention to studies like that. You know, it's, it's important to understand where your city and, and your state rank. Missouri, overall, it ranks 50th out of 51 when it comes to public health spending by the, by the state government. The average state is around $33 a person in terms of what they pay for public health initiatives and programs. 33 And Missouri is six. So it's a huge, huge, huge difference. And now there's lots of things to unpack into that. And I'm certainly not the expert to do it. But that's one thing that sort of, sort of gets, us, gets us off into the right direction. You know, Missouri has six million people. Um, it's a little bit higher than average for our states. Um, 15% of those people live below the federal poverty level. So... Every time we take a look at you know stats and statistics, it's really most important thing to remember is that each state is unique. It's got its own histories, people, challenges, growth opportunities. But the good news is that social determinants of health is starting to become a really significant um, focus for you know, the entire United States, but specifically with the partners that we work with here that are headquartered in St. Louis. Um, you know, social determinants of health has a very quick explanation for people that may not know that the, the general idea is that out of all of the things that go into affect a person's health, funny enough, 20% of those things actually happen inside the four walls of a doctor's office or a hospital. So, that results in 80% of the things that affect and go into someone's overall health 
happen outside the hospital. And we're talking about things like um, employment status, diet and exercise, uh, education, alcohol, drug use, um, a sense of community, having, having people around you, um, safety. So all these things go into much more significantly into a person's health than, than what happens in terms of quality of care that you receive and access to care. And if you take a look at like a Google Trends uh, report, so social determinants of health has been around. People have been talking about it for you know the last 20 years. But really, it seems like it's sort of taken off in the last maybe five or six because more data has come out to show and, and, and really strengthen the case of this 80 to 20 delineation between what happens in the community and then what happens inside the hospital. So what I'm saying there is as we continue to help our local hospital systems and insurance companies access innovation, the best innovation from around the world in social determinants of health, we feel that we're going to help them improve outcomes and actually improve the health of our Missouri population and hopefully even the Midwest because all of our partners that we work with are very far-reaching organizations that have multiple state uh, presence. So let's continue there uh, and perhaps mention a few strong players in uh, St. Louis. As you said yourself, it's home to the largest nonprofit hospital system in the U.S. Ascension. Uh, you've got the v Washington U University, the number one pharmacy benefits manager, Express Scripts, and the fastest growing insurance company in the country. So what's driving this ecosystem? You know, it's quite a stark contrast compared to the state of healthcare in Missouri. You know, the, the Centene story, which, as you mentioned, is the fastest growing insurance company. Centene, when I started here at Global STL three years ago, was a $40 billion company. Um, the next year, they were 48, I believe. Then they went to 68. And now next year, with the recent acquisition they've had in WellCare, they're going to be over a $100 billion company. So that is massive, insane growth. And they started off, actually, they didn't actually, they weren't founded in St. Louis. They were founded in Wisconsin, I believe, and then they moved to St. Louis in the 90s. But just like Express Scripts, which started off as a startup 30 years ago here in St. Louis, Centene found their, their place in our ecosystem. And you know, if you're talking about buying power, Centene and Express Script combined is over over two uh, sorry two hundred billion dollars of healthcare delivery purchasing power. And when I keep saying that term, what I mean is the revenues that flow through these organizations. We use buying power as a surrogate for that. So, yeah, you mentioned Ascension. You mentioned Washington University in St. Louis, which is a top five academic medical research institution. We have three other pretty large health systems here in St. Louis. So SSM Health, it's about 24 hospitals across four states. Mercy, which is a top five in the, I'm sorry, a top 10 in the country. Somewhere around 45 hospitals across the Midwest. Um, $6.5 billion system. BJC Healthcare is the fourth one that we have here. It's mainly focused in St. Louis, but it's a $5 billion um, enterprise. And they're actually partnered with Washington University um, to make a very nice teaching um, practice collaborative. 
And we have RGA, which is a reinsurance company, $11 billion. We have a significant VA, uh, so the Veterans Administration Health System. They have a very significant innovation center here. So when you take a look at all of that, adding in Centene and Express Scripts, it's a really nice representation of the overall U.S. healthcare system. We have pretty much all the players when we're talking about healthcare delivery. St. Louis is not strong in pharmaceuticals. We're not strong in medical devices. So we really want to make sure that everybody understands that when I say St. Louis has more buying power on the healthcare delivery side than Cleveland, Philly, Boston, Nashville, Chicago, we're talking about payers, providers, and PBMs. We're not talking about pharmaceutical and med device. But, you know, when, when you ask, you know, we have such a collection of powerhouses here in St. Louis, how can we have these discrepancies in terms of outcomes and why are we ranked, you know, 42nd or, or 8th worst of 50 states? You know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to make sense of it. But, you know, some of the things have to do with rural health. Um, some of the things have to do with substance abuse, has to do with poverty levels. So, you know, it, there's a lot that goes into it. And I do truly believe, though, that as more innovation starts coming to St. Louis and as we help our organizations here in St. Louis become more open and expectant of accessing innovation, I think we're going to see those things change because our leaders here are fantastic leaders. And not only are they brilliant, but they have the right hearts. And, and they, their hearts are in the right place. So we feel that whenever you combine those two things, we're going to have a good chance of really completely changing the outcomes over these next couple of years. What's the role of global STL in this whole story? I would assume that you're working closely with the big players, but the fact is that you are bringing in the ecosystem a lot of companies from outside, so from Asia, from Europe, from South America. Tell me a little bit more about what you're trying to achieve with these collaborations and how does this fit in the local ecosystem? To, to tell the global STL story, I need to tell a bit of the BioSTL story. So BioSTL is a nonprofit headquartered here in St. Louis uh, of 19 years. It was started by two um, philanthropic and business-focused individuals. Um, the first one is Dr. William Danforth. He's the former chancellor of Washington University in St. Louis for 25 years. Prior to that, he was the dean of the medical school. Um, he realized, you know, in the late 1990s that St. Louis was essentially a, um, a minor league system for the big cities on the east and west coast for entrepreneurial and innovation talent. So we have brilliant people here in St. Louis working at these large institutions, these research centers and universities. When they came to us in the late 1990s, or when they came to anybody in the 1990s and said, hey, I've got this really good idea, who should I go to to help me out? There was nothing here. There was no venture capital. There was no entrepreneur support. There was no collaborative space. There was no no public policy or legislation that helped entrepreneurs get started. And BioSTL was started to essentially be the catalyst organization to fix that. And so, so Bill Danforth, along with his buddy, John McDonald, 
who comes from the McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Company, which now is a part of Boeing, those two individuals put their heads down and basically said, we're going to commit our time, energy, and resources. And by the way, this was in their retirements from their traditional jobs. And they've put together now a, the beginnings of a world-class innovation ecosystem in bioscience. Uh, Brookings Institution recognizes the work of BioSTL as a, as a model, a national model to build innovation clusters in, you know, in this case, bioscience. ICIC, which is a Harvard Business School initiative run by Michael Porter, he's recognized the work of BioSTL and Global SDL that really has totally transformed St. Louis. So BioSTL does quite a few things. We do venture capital. We create and build our own companies. It's always, always almost the earliest stage high-risk capital. We're essentially working with... Um, individual founders that are researchers or academics coming out of our universities. And we help them stand up their company and really figure it out. Uh, so we do a lot of work there. We do a lot of work with public policy. We do a lot of work with women and minority entrepreneurship. We do a lot of work with STEM education and talent development, because that's a huge problem for us right now is, is finding the right people to fill these roles of these innovative companies. But then we get to Global STL. So Global STL was started six years ago, and funny enough, it was started as the St. Louis-Israel Innovation Connection. We called it SLIC, and I'll explain why Israel here in a second. But the, the whole idea of Global STL is to leverage and convene the massive amounts of buying power we have in a couple key industries. So obviously healthcare is one. Agriculture and food is the other, and then a couple other smaller ones, but those are the two bigs. So in terms of healthcare, we took a look and said, we because the people who started Global SDL was Don Rubin, who is the CEO of BioSDL, and then Vijay Chauhan, who's the lead of the Global SDL project. And they took a look and said, why is no one leveraging this buying power and creating a magnet for wanting to bring companies to St. Louis. Because our thesis is that as an innovation community, as a region, <clears throat> you have to not only have an innovation engine driving the growth of your region, <clears throat> excuse me, but you also need to be globally connected. Otherwise, you're at risk of simply being left behind. And in the Midwest, where we are, we're pretty much right in the middle of the country for people who don't know where St. Louis is. <clears throat> we, we have to be very strategic about how do we connect with the rest of the world. If you're on the East or West Coast, it just sort of happens. So what we realized is that we could turn this buying power into a magnet to attract international companies to want to come to St. Louis to access these massive healthcare organizations and then hopefully convince them to stay and put a physical presence here to create economic activity for our region. Because that goes back to the original DNA of BioSDL, right? To help build the innovation ecosystem and help our, help our city grow. So how do we do this? What we do, it's, it's pretty plain and simple, but it takes a lot of time, energy, and commitment. And that is, we spend a lot of time building trust and relationships with innovation leaders, with clinical leaders, with business unit leaders of all of our healthcare partners. And 
As we do that, as we build trust, as we build relationships, they open up more and more and tell us, okay, what, what are your true pain points? What are the things that you really care about? What are the innovation priorities of your, of your sector, your, your, your business area? And for us, <laughs> the best thing is if we can get them to tell us, here is the problem that if I don't solve, I'm going to get fired next year. Because if someone will willingly tell us that, we know that whenever we go out into the world and find a great innovation or startup that can help them solve that problem, they are going to knock down walls in order to bring that company into their organization and to be able to actually extract value and convert that innovation to value. So do you get that a lot? You know, that those uh, hints or between the lines information about problems that could be solved. Because basically what you're describing is that you're not exactly doing a job somebody else was supposed to do, but yeah, solving problems that other people have. Yeah, we, we've really done a pretty darn good job, in my opinion, of finding the right people inside these organizations and getting them to buy in to our mission and what we're trying to do. Because, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, and this uh, it's a good time to say it, we believe that as the entire U.S. ecosystem moves into a value-based world where people are at risk, they're managing community health, they're improving outcomes, they're reducing waste, all of these things, someone or some group eventually is going to figure it out. I mean, we, we are going to figure this out. It's, it's easy to forget, but we will. And what happens is whenever that group, potentially it's from the West Coast or the East Coast, they're going to turn around and tell their board, hey, we have a good pathway to growth, and we're going to start acquiring organizations potentially in the Midwest. What we want to do is we want to find great innovation that our partners here care about that can solve problems for them and creates a competitive advantage that then it empowers them to go on the offensive and be the acquirers as opposed to the acquired. Do a lot of uh, startups from around the world uh, turn to you? Because obviously, because the U.S. market is so big, there's a lot of interest from players all around the world to enter the U.S. market. You know, it's it's much easier to tackle compared to Europe, where you have so many different legislations. Here, if you just take care of one, um, you can potentially access a huge market. But we used Israel as a model. So we started this thing called the St. Louis-Israel Innovation Connection, and it's evolved into Global STL. Israel, I think, only has, you know, what, 7 million people. So every innovator that comes out of Israel is already thinking about how do I take my company either to Europe, uh, potentially China, or, you know, really the United States. We're not offering um, a ton of the stuff on the clinical trial side. What we're really truly offering is access to large US-wide systems and, and organizations that can help them grow the value of their business through real paying customers and customer uh, strategic business development relationships. The reason why we started with Israel 
a few reasons. Israel's strengths match up very well with the strengths of St. Louis, so not only healthcare, but ag, food, and cybersecurity. But then, most importantly, you know, I'm sure some of the folks that are listening, you, you probably already know the Israel innovation story. You know, startup nation, um, one of the highest in the world of per capita um, VC dollars, per capita startups, just an incredible amount of innovation coming out of Israel. And we knew that if we could pull this off and get Israeli companies to want to come to St. Louis and set up their U.S. headquarters here and access these customers, we knew that we could probably do it in other regions as well. We've created a, an extremely compelling case for Israeli startups, for British, for you know Brazilian, any company from around the any country in which we're sourcing startups from. As long as, and here's the one, the one stipulation, as long as their solution solves a recognized problem for our partners and we feel that that company sort of has what it takes to deliver and create that, uh, that value, we will work with that company. It doesn't matter if you come from China, Istanbul, you know, Sao Paulo or, or, even Vancouver. And, and now, actually, we're working with U.S. startups. But um, hopefully that, that answers your question and gives you a little bit more clarity there. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. So if I understand correct, correctly, you're looking for very specific companies. So it's not like any company that would be interested in uh, entering the U.S. market can work with you. Correct. So... What we do is as we build trust and relationships with various leaders and, and people here within our systems, we create shopping lists, innovation shopping lists for each individual organization. And then we turn it into essentially like a 2020 shopping list for all of our partners. So just to give you, you know, a, a few uh, ideas of what's on that shopping list. So let me just actually, I could just pull it up and read it for you. So, um, Let's start with social determinants of health, as I mentioned last year or earlier. Social determinants of health solutions that can improve our overall understanding of our member population and how to best serve them and their health. Senior health engagement solutions or applications, including ones that support a variety of ways to interact, inspire, and improve the health of older Americans. Then we have things like value-based contracting, innovative care models for segments of patient population. So... This list is a very dynamic list. Every year we change it. We're constantly changing it based upon the needs and the shifting priorities of our partners that we source innovation for. Um, last year, you would have seen blockchain on this list. It's off now because the, the overall trend is that blockchain is not ready. I wonder if Nashville would agree with that, you know, the estimate about blockchain. Well, our, yeah, our... Um, our lists are highly, you know, St. Louis centric. And now, you know, I, I should be mentioning this, that because of what we're doing in St. Louis, we now have organizations from five Midwestern states that have joined essentially this global STL platform. So we have folks from Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and obviously Missouri. So for us, this, this did not happen per se, by design, it happened through word of mouth. So our innovation leaders, clinical leaders here in St. Louis, they go to conferences, they talk to people, they say, hey, you know, if, you, if you're interested in accessing the best of the best international innovation, 
go talk to Global STL because you can plug into this, this pipeline, not only get access to the innovation, but you can also get access to a convening platform that we've created for innovation and clinical leaders to come together about six times per year in a group that we call the Global STL Community of Health Innovation Leaders. So the quick story there is we bring together these folks six times per year, as I said, usually on a Friday morning, and we bring them together to talk about what we call the good, the bad, and the ugly of innovation adoption in healthcare, because everybody in this industry knows that this stuff is not easy. Even if you have financial support, if you have you know a, a clinical champion, potentially IT comes in and says, nope, you can't do it for this reason or that reason. There's so many variables that go into it, and you can get right up to the doorstep of a success, and then something happens and comes, cuts the feet out from under you. So what we're doing in this group is getting these folks together to talk about you know, successes and failures, what barriers did they have to overcome, what creative solutions did they, did they have to you know, architect in order to get these things off the ground, and really even potentially most interesting is how do we take a pilot and say, okay, this is successful and now let's scale it because that's a huge issue in digital health right now is figuring out not only do you go from, you know, dating phase to pilot, but the real question is how do you go from pilot to scale in an organization like Ascension that's 124 or 140 hospitals? So, we started this project, you know, about a year and a half ago, this, this community of health innovation leaders, and it's really starting to pay dividends. We feel that we're starting to build deeper networks. We're starting to build more of a capacity for our Midwestern leaders to access innovation, but also really take it and convert it to value. What kind of initiatives are you working on uh, in rural communities? If I understood correctly, you're also active there. You know, just like urban health transformation, a lot of these initiatives <clears throat> we found are really just recycled ideas that haven't worked in the past. So what we're trying to do is really take a first principles uh, approach. And one of the areas that we've identified that we feel we can make a difference is specifically in employer-sponsored health insurance in the rural communities. And you know, without getting into too many details because we're still in the very early stage, but <clears throat> what we see is you know, everybody knows the, the healthcare costs are rising pretty much across the board. And as more and more resources of these rural communities are being used on healthcare, uh, it's a really difficult trend to overcome because you have a small tax base, you've got other programs and things you've got to do, other things need to be fixed and maintained, but just more and more of the budget goes to healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. So <clears throat> we, uh, we, we realized that the first target is potentially identifying and architecting programs that can work with employers and reduce healthcare costs while maintaining or improving access and quality of care. In addition, the savings that they create is something that is going to be turned into something called a health dividend. And there's, a, you know, the, 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 the overall story is that you take this health dividend, the money that you're saving on healthcare, and you can reinvest it into the communities and reinvest it into programs that the constituents care about. And, you know, this may, this may sound like a dream, but it's really not because people in the United States are doing this now. There are models that make this work. So those are the types of things that we're looking at. And by the way, BioSTL is not trying to be the leader on this. We are simply trying to be a convener 
And we are trying to bring the right folks to the table. And then once it sort of has its own legs, we're going to basically pass it off and let, and let it become an entity of its own. So um, there's some really exciting things going on, but um, we, we still got a, quite a bit of a ways to go to figure it out. You are uh, connected to 15 international countries around the globe. So one natural question for me was, how do you uh, compare the, the healthcare systems in different countries? Uh, I'm sure Brazilians, Chinese, Israeli, the Dutch, the Swedes differ a lot. Maybe not even in terms of the healthcare systems that they work in at home, but uh, in their attitude towards healthcare and health. Is there anything that you can say about the cultures that you engage with? Let's talk about Israel again, because they, they really have it figured out. So in terms of digital health, um, how do you create truly you know, clinically valuable and, and validated models for, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, care pathways, you know, lots of different things. You need data, right? Where, where are you going to get access to data to train these models and then figure out if what you're trying to do actually creates an outcome in, in Israel? They have a really beautiful database when it comes to high-quality, longitudinal data over very long periods of time. As a brief aside, when you go, if you're an Israeli and you're, you live in Tel Aviv and you're on vacation in Haifa up in the north and something happens and you need to go to the hospital, all you have to do is show up to that hospital in Haifa, show your card, and then that person in front of you has access to your entire medical history from, if you're a person my age, 32, from birth till now. In the United States, that is a pipe dream that we would love to have, but it's nowhere close to happening. But the point is, the government in Israel says that this, this data needs to be made available for free to startups. And so that is an incredible, incredible advantage that Israeli companies have over, say, companies from... Uh, maybe Germany or France. So that is one thing that was totally mind-blowing whenever I learned about that. You know, another one, uh, a pretty cool model that they have at the NHS in England. So there's this idea of this clinical entrepreneur program. It's run by a guy named Tony Young. And it's something like 500 doctors are being trained on how to build companies, how to be entrepreneurs, and to solve the pain points within the NHS system, and then potentially grow that company and go solve problems in the United States. So we work with a couple of those guys. A couple of them have come to our summit. Um, and actually, we need to talk about the summit here in a second. But the the other thing, you know, when we, we take delegations of of innovation leaders and clinical leaders to different parts of the world. A lot of them are Israel. They're simply just blown away by what they have there. But it's unique because um, you know, we talk a lot about social determinants of health, right? And in Israel, innovators are not focused on building social determinants of health solutions because they've been doing pop health for 20 years. Now, that's one of the reasons why we've actually had to start looking at U.S.-based startups because what we find is the strongest social determinants of health companies are coming from the United States because of the 
the very real need that we have for innovations in the space, but we can't find it in Israel, for example. We might find it in other places, but that's why we have to look at the U.S. In terms of the future development of uh, bio-STL or global STL, um, what would you say are your weaknesses? Where do you still wish to improve? What are your aspirations? First of all, changing the awareness of what St. Louis offers. I think that's going to be a huge one for the success both of Global SDL, but also our partners here and really improving the health of our population. You know, other things are related to really figuring out how do we create a culture of innovation. You know, other industries, they run laps around healthcare in terms of taking an innovation, understanding exactly where it fits into the business, where it disrupts the business, how to extract ROI. And, you know, that's just a part of everyday life in every other industry. For whatever reason, healthcare is not there yet. And that's okay. We'll get there. But, you know, those are the types of things that here in St. Louis, we have found that we are just a little bit behind because, As we talk about, all of the innovation from all over the world, they don't traditionally come to St. Louis. It's not a strategic focus for a lot of these guys. And that's changing. That's rapidly, rapidly changing. But because of that history, the culture of innovation just hasn't quite been developed as richly here in St. Louis. So that's one of the things that Global STL, we're really focused on, and we're really trying to help our partners do. And I think... The fact that we are not only working with innovation leaders, but we're also working with clinical leaders, we're working with business unit leaders to understand what their pain points are, and then partnering with the innovation leader to help them make their job even easier. I think the last thing I would say, the difference between technical problems and the difference between people problems. I think healthcare is blessed A lot of the problems that we have are people problems as opposed to purely technical problems. You know, of course, we have rare diseases that we need to come up with solutions for. We've got lots of things to do on the technical side, but I would say the lowest hanging fruit is purely on the people problem side. And that comes with figuring out how to collaborate together How do we sort of align interests? How do we share value? And how do we focus on creating value for both sides? I think healthcare is very entrenched in sort of the models and the ideas. Um, how can we sort of accelerate that and get people involved that see the potential of taking innovation and, and, and helping improve, drive outcomes, but also respecting the fact that it's a completely different industry Lots of issues about privacy, lots of issues about, you know, really making sure people feel safe and in, in the hands of, of good caretakers. So there's unique problems, but I, I, think, uh, I think we're on the good path. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Coming up next, a series about digital therapeutics. Stay tuned, visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com, subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps the show going. Thank you. Stay tuned.